Today's guest is the psychologist behind a screening test to detect dementia, which affects 800,000 people in the UK. You'll hear about a business grown out of university research that services drug trials and more. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. In this section called Scientists at Work, we talk to people who, for some reason or another, find themselves working, researching or thinking about science in Cambridge, England. Fellow scientist Chris Kreese is here with me. How's it going? Hi, all. Now, Roger, I heard you went for a chat with a psychologist last week. I did, but before everyone gets the wrong idea, I spoke with one of the chief scientists involved in designing tests that check out how well we're thinking. She works for a firm in Bottisham called Cambridge Cognition. They're described as neuropsychological test developers. Wasn't that connected with a news headline the other week involving screening for dementia? Yep. No less than David Cameron, the Prime Minister, has ordered a study of these tests that dramatically reduce the time it takes to detect Alzheimer's. The tests, which used to require fancy research gear, now take just 10 minutes using an app that runs on an iPad or tablet-type device. It detects the difference between patients with normal and abnormal memory. And we tend to hear quite a bit about dementia in the elderly, but did you know that dementia affects also 17,000 younger people? Okay, well, I'm not in that group. That many? No, I didn't. Um, Well, the point is that if they can treat the problem earlier, the story said, there's a better chance of delaying the worst aspects of the condition. So I visited Cambridge Cognition just outside town. I spoke with scientist and psychologist Dr Jenny Barnett to find out what the firm does. I wanted to find out what got her interested in science, and I also wanted to know if she had any tips on getting my brain to work any better. And did she? Well, sort of, yes. You'd better listen to our 15-minute chat. So the company takes scientific tools that were developed originally in the University of Cambridge and then elsewhere, and we make them useful in a number of ways. We make them available to other academic researchers. We use them in drug development with alongside the pharmaceutical industry and we use them in mainstream healthcare now. So the base technology for the company is a set of cognitive tests, so they look like computer games. They were developed originally in the university to measure how different parts of the brain work and they're used now in the pharmaceutical industry when they're developing drugs for diseases like Alzheimer's disease, so where the brain's going wrong and the drug company wants to measure whether their drug makes it better or indeed makes it worse. These very sensitive tests can help them to do that. And we're also using them now in mainstream healthcare. So we're using a test that's very sensitive to the early signs of Alzheimer's disease and it's being used in the NHS by GPs. So if you go to your GP worried about your memory, you might be it might be our test that's used to measure whether you do or don't really have a memory problem. I would imagine that these tests would have taken hours. That's right. So this company is good at taking things that have been developed to be as scientifically accurate and precise and are often quite complex, as you say, and tweaking them so that they're really useful in the real world outside of the universities. So when a psychologist develops a test, they want to make it as absolutely as accurate as possible. When a doctor uses a test, they want it to be accurate enough, but also to do that within a 10-minute appointment. Um, They want to be able to test someone not only if they're a young, smart undergraduate on whom the test might have been developed, but also if they're an older person who's not familiar with computers. They want it to be able to speak multiple languages so that they can test ethnic minorities and so forth. So it's those very practical things that we do to take these very sophisticated scientific tests and 
make them more usable. So they're very visual tests? They're visual tests. The, the tests were originally developed so that they could be used not only in humans but also in, in animals. Wow. And, of course, the advantage of that, from our point of view, we only work with humans, is that they can be used in people that speak all sorts of different languages. So we can use the same test in a global pharmaceutical trial that's being run in 50 countries across the world because the tests don't involve speaking, they involve patterns and, uh, and objects and visual symbols. Am I understanding correct that you are designing the trial? We don't do the trial, that's right. So we work with the pharmaceutical companies if they want to measure the sort of thing that our tests can measure. In some companies they have a lot of expertise, they know exactly what they're doing. In other companies they maybe don't know anything about cognitive function at all. They might be developing a drug for something completely different but they want to check that it doesn't have a bad effect on cognition. So it might be that you have a drug for overactive bladder, and Mm -hmm. we know that because of the way that that drug works, it can have a bad effect on your memory. So the regulators, the FDA in America and so forth, need to test that it's not having a bad effect on your your cognitive function. They want to see evidence for that before they approve the drug. How about the other way around? How about drugs that would enhance your brain function? There must be a huge want Yeah, absolutely, particularly for Alzheimer's disease. Obviously, it's a huge public health problem and the pharmaceutical companies are putting a lot of money into trying to develop drugs to improve cognitive function. So I think our tests get used in two ways there. One is that we think that the drugs are most for Alzheimer's disease are most likely to be effective if they're given before you get to a really bad stage in the disease. So in general, the field is moving to testing people earlier and trying to improve their cognitive function before they really get to a bad state. So our tests get used to describe the range of people that are going into the drug study, I suppose. So you want them to be impaired at a certain level on a memory test, but maybe not in the stage of full dementia, for example. So they get used to describe the people that are going in, to define the people that are going in, or, and sometimes both, to measure the effect that the drug is happening So you want to measure how good someone's memory is at the start, give them a drug for perhaps six weeks or six months or two years and measure how good their memory is afterwards. And what you typically see in something like Alzheimer's disease is that the people taking the placebo will get much worse over that time period and you're hoping that the people taking the drug will either get better or won't get as bad. Now, I understand Alzheimer's is a, a big tell us How big an issue is um, I think that there are about 800,000 people in the UK with dementia at the moment, so it's massive. How about a stock trader on the stock exchange? Right. So he wants to improve his cognitive function, or she, yes. or she, up and above the normal range. There are people that think that's possible. There are reports that some drugs that have been developed to help people with cognitive problems, like in ADHD, for example are being used by people, are being abused by people, I suppose, because they think it improves their cognitive function. Uh, And, of course, I've already uh, abused caffeine several times today in order to improve my cognitive function. So there is a debate about whether that's a good thing or not and whether if we had drugs that could improve cognitive function among healthy people that are already functioning at an optimal level, whether we should be allowed to do that or whether it would be like a doping situation in sport. I don't think we have drugs that are that good at the moment, but it's certainly something that we'd need to think about in the future. So you believe in caffeine or you've tested it? <laughs> well, it's interesting. It's, it's actually really difficult to demonstrate an effect of caffeine, even on our very sensitive cognitive tests. We know that it can slightly improve your reaction time, but it's nothing like the impact that you probably think it's having. I feel that I can't 
have any sensible conversation before I've had a cup of coffee in the morning. Mm -hmm. But it's actually very difficult to prove that. I I sometimes wonder if caffeine has a big placebo effect on me. (laughs) How about B vitamins? Because they've been very interesting as far as uh, brain function are concerned. That's right, yeah. So there's a lot of interest in B vitamins and other supplements, fish oil, for example, um, ginkgo biloba, these kinds of things. And when you look in observational studies, people that take these supplements do seem to have better outcomes. They have less dementia. They have better brain health. The problem is that we think the people that take these are a self-selecting group that are already most worried about their health and being most proactive in all sorts of ways in trying to improve their cognitive function. So when you take those observations and apply them in a randomised control trial, Unfortunately, they don't seem to hold up. So if you randomly give people B vitamins or a placebo, it doesn't seem to have a big effect on their cognitive function. So we're hopeful that some of these supplements might have an effect, but as yet, the data is not really very supportive. I think in people who have a deficiency of all kinds of vitamins and nutrients, remediating that deficiency probably has an effect on lots of aspects of health including brain health so if you are deficient in a particular vitamin then taking some of that vitamin is probably good for your brain health i think the bigger question is whether among people who aren't deficient is there any point in taking these supplements it's a huge industry right people are spending lots of money on these vitamins and that's largely unsupported with respect to uh, brain health and dementia so really good marketing really good marketing on the internet you can find these websites where you do a kind of brain gym every day. Again, I think that could be an example of good marketing. So there's a Nintendo brain gym game, for example, that mm. lots of people play, and it's made, made lots of money for Nintendo. There are some small studies that suggest that doing brain gym activities, being cognitively active, is good for your brain. There are other studies, mostly the larger studies, that suggest it doesn't have that much effect. So I think... Again, if you're already cognitively active, if you already take part in cognitively challenging activities, then doing an extra 10 minutes a day of Sudoku or a crossword or so forth probably isn't going to have any effect. If you spent all day watching daytime television and never took part in cognitively active uh, activities, then it might have some effect. But I don't think there's good evidence for it at the moment. What there is good evidence for is that being physically active is good for your brain. So I think you're better off spending your time doing some physical activity than you are doing uh, brain gym exercises on the internet. You would surely endorse people using their brains. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's clearly not going to do any harm. <laughs> and we know that over a lifetime this probably has an effect. So, for example, people that have higher levels of education and people that have been in more intellectually demanding professions over a lifetime, that lowers your risk for dementia. But what I'm not sure about is that in later life, say, doing a little bit of a brain gym activity is actually really going to have much effect. I think this is probably something that builds up over a whole lifetime. Okay, but you might feel better. You might feel better. You might be entertained. And uh... These tests, in the old days, they must have been on push-button machines, but these days I imagine you're using touchscreen type things. That's right. So the one thing that's unique about our technology is that even 25 years ago when it was first developed, it was developed on a touchscreen computer. Um, And 25 years ago, touchscreen computers were huge, expensive things. And of course, now we all have them on our 
our iPads and our smartphones. And that's really what's allowed us to take the tests into healthcare systems is the availability of touchscreens. The old-fashioned way of doing these things is actually with a great big set of, we call them pencil and paper tests, but they often involve physical objects that you had to ask people what the name of things were. So an old-fashioned psychologist would walk around with a suitcase full of forms and objects and so forth. Um, We're hoping that in the future you'd be able to walk around with with all these tests loaded on your iPad or, or on a small, cheap, portable device, and you'd be able to call up whichever test was appropriate for that patient at that time. Okay, that would be a doctor doing that. Yeah. Or, or it would be a specialist. psychologist, yeah, that's right. I think yeah. that would be the future. Okay, so two general questions. Cambridge Cognition, what does it do? So Cambridge Cognition is a software company. We take software developed in scientific institutions and make it useful to scientists around the world, but also to doctors. And... Are you also working for drug companies? So we work with drug companies. They use our software in some of the clinical trials when they're developing new drugs that they think would either have a good effect on cognitive function and they want to measure that or might have a bad effect on cognitive function and they want to be sure that that isn't the case. Okay. So we have three sets of clients. One is scientists that are doing all sorts of research and are interested in in, um, how the brain works. The second is pharmaceutical companies that are trying to measure whether their drug has an effect on how the brain works. And the third set are clinicians, so doctors, GPs and, uh, and specialists who are trying to assess whether a particular patient has a problem in some area of cognitive function like memory or attention. As I'm picking up, you are test designers. In the scientific sense, yes. We have software engineers here who are the test designers in the software sense of it, but it's the scientists in the company, the psychologists and cognitive scientists, that are ultimately responsible for making sure that it's measuring the right thing and in a way that is acceptable to the patient and the clinician or the uh, nurse or the researcher that's using them. And some of that is intuitive and some of it needs checking out in practice. That's right. Some of it is a matter of does it feel like it's testing what you want it to be testing? Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we formally test that with volunteers or in collaboration with academics if we um, want to test things with patients or with larger groups of people. So stats must come into this. That's right. So when we're adapting a accurate scientific test for use by a clinician who's not a specialist, not a psychologist, not a test designer, what we're looking for is to try and make the test accurate enough to absolutely do the job to allow them to make the medical decision that they're trying to make, but to make that in a way that's as simple as possible for the clinician to understand and as easy as possible for the patient. Something sucked you into this field. What got you interested in science? I had a very good psychology teacher in sixth form, and he got me interested in psychology. I only took psychology because I didn't want to take business studies or history. But yeah, so an excellent teacher at sixth form got me interested in psychology. That led to a psychology degree. That led to a psychology PhD. And then somewhere along the line, I became interested in applying science more broadly outside of just university research. How I got involved with this company was that during my PhD, we had a new service set up in Cambridge that was for people who were having a first psychotic episode. So they were just beginning to have some psychotic symptoms, might be going to end up being diagnosed with schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, something like that. And so part of my PhD, I was 
doing cognitive testing on those people as part of the clinical service. And I was using these cognitive tests that this company develops. I became knowledgeable about them and interested in them from from there. And that's really how I got interested in applying them more broadly clinically into the NHS. Very interesting. And thanks to Dr. Jenny Barnett and Cambridge Cognition for your help and your time. We'll put a link up to your site on our podcast page on cambridge105.fm and it'll go live by Wednesday this week. So Roger, you're not going to be into brain gyms anymore? Well, yes, that looks like a dead end for my getting clever in time for Christmas. I'm going to have to give the garage a refit. What do you mean? Well, I set up the garage as a brain gym with Nintendos and such like. Now Jenny says I'd better go and install some physical exercise machines. Ah, yes, and improving your general level of education. Yes, I'm working on that. And taking your vitamins. And I'm taking my pills. By the way, I meant to say, how did you get on with your psychologist? What did your psychologist say? He said I'm getting better. Okay. (laughs) And I'll be all right without the pills. Uh Okay, well, it's time for a jingle. Andrew Medicine, Roger. That's pretty much all for today's show. Scientists at Work is made by the Science Show team on Community Radio, Cambridge 105. You can also find past episodes on the website, www.cambridge105.fm. You can also subscribe to future podcasts with the iTunes store. You can get in touch with us on the email science at cambridge105.fm or on Twitter at 105science. Till next time, it's bye from the Science Show team of Roger Frost and Chris Crease. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105.